This is a public interest journalism podcast from the team at Crokey News. Hi, I'm Kate Carrigan. Welcome to Crokey Voices. I acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being made, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. This time round, Australia's media landscape is being rattled by COVID-19. Seven West Media and News Corp have announced cuts as advertising revenue dives along with economic activity. We look at the impact on regional publications. And Patient 31 and the sole response, how testing, tracking and tracing became a nationwide obsession. It is a huge operation and it's a lot of suspense. If you live in a regional centre, you'll know the value of local media. Saffron Howden, a journalist, editor and former Google News Initiative teaching fellow, certainly does after doing a study across Australia and New Zealand. And she's now worried about the impact of COVID-19, finding it's threatening these vital sources of community information. There is actually an exact count of the number of uh, regional newspapers around the country, which is a bit disappointing. If you look at the telemedia database, um, which is probably the most comprehensive one at the moment, it says that there are about 540 regional newspapers around Australia. And um, there are likely to be quite a few more that haven't made it to that database. So around Australia, we think there's definitely well over 2,000 journalists um, employed in regional media outlets. That's a, that's a substantial number of jobs and that's a substantial number of people working for regional media, which is often the um, main source of news and information for people living in rural areas in Australia. And as you've explained in your Crokey News article, it's not just that crucial news that uh, these publications and these journalists supply, is it? They're, they're actually an integral part of the community. I think this is, for me, as someone who has spent almost a year travelling around regional and rural newsrooms across Australia and New Zealand, and in fact... One of the main things that strikes me about regional newspapers is that not only are they a source of reliable, quality journalism for the local community, but they are very much part of their communities. They're a huge part of civil society in regional areas. So they're providing that essential information, which at the moment is um, more important than ever because of coronavirus. What's really important from the point of view of localised health responses is local area information. And so as we're seeing some of these papers starting to struggle and even close, that means that that each of those communities where those papers are are losing a really vital source of information for for local health advice apart from anything else, Um, but also um, journalists being able to filter their national level information to make it as relevant as possible for the local community, taking into account local health resources, local population, that kind of thing. And those financial pressures that are coming more and more to to bear because of what's happened to the economy due to COVID-19, that's led to a few of these publications closing, hasn't it, in in recent times? It's absolutely tragic. So I think the the news media, as we all know, across the globe has been under a, a lot of pressure for, really has been building up over a couple of decades now, ever since the advent of the internet, really. So advertising, of course, in these regional papers is still the main source of income. Coronavirus 
um, advertising and the closure of businesses across Australia uh, and around the world and people having to work from home um, and, and also restrictions on movement and gatherings and all that kind of thing. It means that a lot of businesses have had to shut. They've lost a huge amount of revenue overnight. Among those is uh, the uh, Sunraysia Daily, which is based in Mildura in Western Victoria. Um, that's a daily newspaper servicing um, Mildura, but the same people who own that, the Elliott Newspaper Group, they also publish a number of other smaller publications in the region. So they've already stopped printing. The Barrier Daily Truth in Broken Hill in Western New South Wales, which is a union-owned publication, they've stopped printing. There's a few in Gippsland region of Victoria who've stopped publishing despite having published prior to this for over 100 years. And then there are much larger number of publications are printing much smaller newspapers with much less advertising and have started laying off staff. So at a time when people are very anxious, this is an extraordinary time in the world's history that we're going through. It's just something that we've never seen before. These communities are at the risk of, uh, of more confusion and rumours and possibly despair at feeling their local community isn't valued enough to have a, uh, a local paper. And this is why it is absolutely tragic that we're seeing the loss of local newspapers at the moment because this is when people need that information most. Food for thought. Rural publishers have called on the federal government to release an estimated $40 million from its regional and small publishers' jobs and innovation package to help them through the pandemic. And the Public Interest Journalism Initiative wants that figure raised to $100 million and public service advertising increased in local news media. South Korea was the first country outside of China to see a rapid rise in cases of COVID-19. But after a steep rise, at one stage recording 909 new infections in one day, it has seemingly flattened the curve through meticulous testing and tracking. February 18 marked a turning point in South Korea's response to the virus – Already alert to the potential of a dangerous outbreak due to experience with the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome and SARS, Seoul was gearing up. But on this day, media reports emerged of Patient 31, a 61-year-old woman who'd tested positive in South Korea's third largest city and had travelled freely in her community and attended meetings of a religious sect, since seen as central to the spread of the coronavirus. Jin Hee Kim, a South Korean public health researcher based in Australia, has written two articles for Crokey News on her country's response to the pandemic. We saw China increasing and and of course this was going to affect you know the spread in Korea as well. So the health system was very vigilant from the start. And one of the things that they started doing was to prepare for a potential outbreak within Korea, which happened um, very quickly, actually, when they found a super spreader. And that patient was in all these different places before being diagnosed and was also part a, of, a, um, of a church group, of a religious group, which did not suspend their church services so quickly on the health system did um, track uh, where this person had been and, you know, the different routes that could have potentially had affected the spread. So what makes somebody a super spreader? 
I don't know the uh, the technical definition, but somebody who, without knowing that they were infected, that because they didn't, you know, stay put and just met with people as they used to and did all the everyday activities and just unknowingly infected so many people. Patient 31's case served as a warning to the world on failing to practice social distancing and self-isolation. Cases spiked and the South Korean Centre for Disease Control ramped up testing. So they quickly approved the testing kits and got private pharmaceutical companies and also the diagnosis facilities like pathology labs and you know all the facilities that are needed to perform these tests. And also because we have a pretty strong public health system, so all local governments have a public health center, which quickly set up designated testing clinics. Then you had the testing done, you identified people who had been infected, and then you honed in on those cases through tracing and tracking. It sounds a bit like a suspense thriller, always seeking and chasing. How does it work and what data is used by the Korean authority, the South Korean authorities to track people and trace them? Oh, yes, it is a huge operation and it's a lot of suspense. Um, And people are very involved. All the, you know, all Koreans are involved. It's all in the news and you see the different routes of where these people were. So before the community spread happened, there's not, not many patients at the time. At the beginning, it's more of the traditional interviewing process. You know, you ask these patients where they were and at what time, what they did, who they contacted, all that kind of thing. But then everybody has smartphones now, which is linked to GPS data. And also you use credit cards to make purchases. And then you have all these surveillance cameras in apartment buildings or, you know, in in parking garages and everywhere. This isn't a normal exercise. It's only during these emergency epidemic outbreaks that um, the police would triangulate all these data to really map out where these confirmed cases were before they were diagnosed. And that would really give a detailed account. If you look at the reports, it's minute by minute. It's like 10.56, this person was here doing this, you know, 11.24, doing something else. And, you know, if they were wearing masks, they look at the surveillance cameras to see if they were wearing masks, if they met with anybody And that's how they collect the data. It's extraordinary. I saw one of the images from the article you wrote for Crokey News. And uh, yes, the level of detail, as you say, minute by minute, where they were, transport used, in a pharmacy, wherever they went to. Exactly, yeah. And this information then, you said the police triangulated and it then is given to the South Korean Centre for Disease Control, they have access to it? Yes, they do. It's for the epidemiological investigation purposes. And it's shared also with the local government who are now responsible for tracking and tracing for potential cases. Then they get onto these people and I believe there's also an app used to 
to try to alert people and also track their movements if there's somebody who has to go into self-isolation. Yes, exactly. I had a friend who um, was, you know, in the vicinity of a known confirmed case and she was worried that she could have been a close contact. But, you know, people were saying, don't worry, they will contact you first if you were in risk. So just see if you get a call or not. She didn't. So thank God. It must be very reassuring to know that because in Australia, we feel like these the unseen enemy is lurking around mm. the corner. You don't know mm-hmm. where it is. Yeah, I think that's where the fear comes from. You have all these undetected cases, sort of, you don't know how they're spreading under the radar. And that is very unsettling for everybody. And self-isolation in South Korea is strictly enforced and followed up. Uh, Yes, it is. But then I think there's also the culture in Korea where there is that sort of public participation or that civil duty and discipline to that. You know, honestly, I sometimes think that in Korea, it's more about the social responsibility than the clinical nature itself. You're, if you become a confirmed patient, then, you know, your life is out there. So people do, I think, fear of that a little bit. So and, you know, in general, we are a bit disciplined than in other countries. And we were kind of trained to do so since we were young. Mm, so there might be public shaming if you don't do yes, the right thing. Yes, exactly. And has there been a backlash at all against an erosion of privacy and civil liberties? It's an interesting debate, it is. isn't it? In, is, imagine it in Australia and you see, yes, it's a, it's very effective, it's flattened the curve, but would mm. our society accept mm. it? And is this a debate we all need to have around the world? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, we do have the technology to do more detailed investigation. But then the other side of it is how much are we invading privacy to do so? Um, But I think at the moment, because this isn't a normal time, it's like a warlike world at the moment, and we're restricting people's movements. If you think of it that way, I think there is room to reconsider, but then this shouldn't be an excuse to make this sort of, you know, data collection, a normal thing. But at the moment, you know, Mm. we, we can't lose time. Crokey Voices wants to hear from you about your experience with COVID-19. Where are you? How are you keeping busy and healthy under lockdown? Have you some creative tips? You can contact me through our website at crokey.org or on Twitter at Crokey Voices. This week, Crokey News correspondent Mari McInerney sent us this message. Hi, I'm Mari McInerney. I'm in Melbourne. We're living on Wurundjeri land here. And we've been in lockdown now uh, pretty much for more than a week because we had a daughter finally find her way back from overseas and she's tucked away in a little granny flat. And we're taking Jacinda Ardern's advice, which is act as if you have it, hoping the best for everybody. That's it for Crokey Voices. Be sure to visit us at crokey.org and join the conversation. You can subscribe to Crokey News for just $55 a year and help fund the public interest journalism we love to share. And listen to us on iTunes and Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts.